Good morning. A reading from Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his, world, his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. There you go. Amen. It's good, good to be with you all today. And um, uh, my name is Mike Bellamy, and I'm one of the members here. And uh, my wife, Kim, is in the back, and I have my oldest daughter, Shannon, and uh, my granddaughter, Ari, and Shannon is expecting our second grand. Uh, his name is Josiah Michael. Uh, he's carrying my, my, at least he has my middle name. And uh, I have a good friend of mine in the back, Sean Lanier. And so we just want to just welcome them and for being with us. So let's, let's pray. Father, we just, uh, we're so grateful for you today. We're so grateful for uh, just being a part of your family, we're so grateful for the truths that you have placed in your word for us to learn and to discover and to apply in our lives. We're so grateful just for your care. We're so grateful for what you've done for us, and we're so grateful for how you're with us as we walk through trials, as we work through the, the challenges of life. We're grateful that you sought us out and you allowed us to hear the gospel and respond to it. And as Lord, as we go through this text today, and even as the exhortation that came through Tally and even the prayer that Gabe provided us, Lord, it all seems to harmonize, Lord, what you want to say to us today. You want to say to us, Lord, how much you love us. You want to say to us how great the call that you have for us. And it's in this passage that you will explain it to us today. 
Father, I pray that every heart would be opened, every distraction, Lord, would be, would be removed, everything, Lord, that would cause us to be, not to lock into what you want to say to us today, that those things would be minimized, oh God. Lord, I pray that where we have been awash with the busyness of living in this area, that somehow, Lord, you would remove that, that we would hear these life-changing truths today through your word. And Father, I thank you that you would fill this atmosphere with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Lord, that you would illuminate our eyes and our hearts to see and to understand these things today. And even as Paul prayed for me today, Lord, that Lord, that somehow you would connect us to these realities of this great salvation that you've given us. And so, Lord, we just thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the text today is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And really because of time, and um, I was instructed that I have 45 minutes, and so I have to move really quickly through this. But I want to real quickly, I want to establish a high-level overview of the context, and then I want to use this context as a lens for us to dive in and to explore the truth that God has in his word today. And we know that uh, Ephesus was a, a city, it was located in four major roads intersections in Asia Minor. It was a, it was a strategic city. It was strategic, in fact, that all these different people were coming and intersecting at the city. And commercially, it was one of the largest trading centers in Asia Minor. They, they believed that there were over 200,000 people in this city. And as you and I, as we put ourselves into this context, as we are walking into the city with Paul, we would, we would encounter a city that is given over to black magic and the occult practices. As we look in the city, we would see the, the great temple of Artemis or Diana that dominated the landscape. She was the goddess of fertility. They called her the many-blessed one, the one where sex was, was exalted. And there, there'd be a time in that season of the year, there was a month-long festival that was full of orgies and these things and that ended with a sacrifice to the God. They believe her temple was full of almost a thousand prostitutes that were priestess. The city, as we're walking the streets and we hear the activity, it's filled with this belief that supernatural powers could, could be summoned up to aid people. And this, this belief gives rise to this prolific and very lucrative industry where they're selling charms and amulets and incantations and there's trafficking all in the city as as sorcerers are sharing their paraphernalia and they're soothsaying and they're they're connected to this unclean spirits and they're giving these things out so the city is full of darkness and on top of that there's the compulsory 
of the worship of the Roman emperor. That when you don't do this, it's considered an act of treason. And every year you have to declare your allegiance to Caesar. And so it was a tough place. A place that as we study the book of Acts, we see that there was powerful gospel impact. As Paul, doing his third missionary journey, he spent three years there and he was used mightily to affect the city to a point where the industry that was caused by the worship of Diana, they were losing money. Now, how many would say that that's a, that's a gospel gospel encounter right there that's a gospel encounter so let's look at the author of the book his name is Paul and he wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome and and this book is a part of what they call the prison epistles and as we look at this timeline or this graph behind me we see that from Paul's conversion to his death, it was approximately 30 years. He didn't have a long life, but he had a very impactful life. Some scholars estimated that Paul traveled over 10,000 miles. There was something in this man's life that had gripped him, that had caused him to say that I will, I will take the gospel wherever it is, wherever you call me, I will go. I will, I will go to the reaches of the world. I will go to the Gentiles where you called me. And then as we look at his life, uh, there were about 10 to 11 years of really what I call free-ranging, powerful church planning where he did three missionary journeys and then the last 10 years or 11 years of his life was probably the most challenging. His first imprisonment, it was probably about five years. Two of those years, he was under house arrest in Rome and perhaps he was chained to a Roman soldier. Now, how many would say that was pretty inconvenient? Everywhere you go, this guy is hanging with me. I can't even, you know, go to the bathroom. This guy's there. Or, but even in the midst of this, as we'll see in the text, Paul somehow finds joy. He writes Ephesians and the other prison epistles while he's chained. You know, we talk about the sovereignty of God. And I don't know about you, but if I was put in that situation for five years for something that I didn't do, I think I'd have an attitude. I think I'd be really upset with God with putting me in this situation. Look at all that you've done in my life over these 10 years, and now my, my last years of my life, I'm, 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 I'm encountering these things. And, and then after he's released the first time, there's about five years, but then he, he discovers that the church is under assault 
by false teachers. And so he's trying to, to straighten out the situation. He's trying to stabilize the churches. He's finding false teachers rising up from within the churches that he's planted. And there's this desperate situation that he's trying to stabilize. He begins to set men in place like Titus. He writes Timothy, encouraging Timothy. And then his second imprisonment would last it about a year. He dies a martyr's death in Rome. Tradition says that Paul was beheaded. Now, as I studied this passage and I studied his life, I was impacted by the outworking of God's grace in this man's life. And as I was pondering this, I, because sometimes we can put false guilt on ourselves. We can look at Paul's life and we can say, oh, that's, oh, I can't do that. I feel so bad that my commitment isn't like that. And I would say that would be one of two spiritual missteps that we can make. And then the second misstep is that somehow we discount that commitment to say that that's just Paul. But when we do that, we don't realize that the demands of the gospel, the demand of discipleship to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus, they apply to every believer in this room. And in fact, when Jesus was speaking in Mark chapter 8, he gathered the crowd together and Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and the crowd was there. And he begins to tell them about discipleship. As he's looking at the cross that he would soon be on, he tells them. And when he's gathered this crowd, there is a message. And he says that if you want to follow me, you have a couple choices to make. The first one is to deny yourself. You've got to put your self-interest down for the cause of the gospel. You have to put your self-interest down. You have to relinquish control over your life. Your life is not your own. And that requirement is universal for us today. And I believe that part of our problem today in the West and amongst all of our affluence that deadens our compassion, that deadens our, our desire to serve God, that makes us feel that we don't need God. That somehow we feel that we're in control of our lives. And we will serve God on our own terms. We will negotiate with him. We, will, we don't consult him. We don't do any of those things. 
But what we see in Paul's life, those demands, he embraced them. And Jesus said in that passage in Mark, a very paradoxical statement. I want you to listen here. Because we're talking about the author of this book who has embraced this. Jesus said this. He said, if you save your life, you're going to lose it. If you put self-centeredness above my plan, you're going to lose it. But if you place, lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. Now, I know when I read that this, this past week, it didn't feel very good. I'm like, I know you don't mean that. I was chafing against that. Anybody else chafing against that this morning? But it's true. And it's a decision. It's an act of our will. The Lord is saying, if you want to follow me, you have to decide. And when you follow me, it means obedience into everything that is written in this book. Will you follow me? I said I wouldn't do this, but I I was sharing with Jordan and Jackie as we were preparing. You like my stories, don't you? I know you do. Last year, I was down in Panama, and uh, I was speaking in this small village outside of Panama City called Chilibre. And as we were driving to this place, the guy who I was with, Guillermo Hunt, he shares with me that, you know, this area is probably what has one of the highest concentration of witchcraft. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm glad you told me this. But as we were speaking, there were four nights. Three of those nights... The meetings lasted four hours. The first night lasted seven hours. Preaching, Luke 4, the power of the Spirit operating. We were in this, this building that was concrete, tin roof, no air condition, in the tropics. And as the guest speaker, you had to wear a suit. So I was like I was drenched in a baptismal pool. <laughs> Eric, you wouldn't have made it there. <laughs> so in this gathering, it was about this size. Children, families, nobody left. For seven hours... Nobody left. And in the end, 
they stood up and they cheered the word. They were so happy for Jesus. They were so happy to hear the Bible. They were so happy to hear good teaching. And as I saw that, I began to weep because I knew that my affluence had deadened my love for the word. And then the next day, now they didn't even have a worship time there, Jordan. No music. Straight teaching. Power of the Spirit moving. And then the word got out. People from the city began to come. They said, God is moving in this little house, this little church on the hill. And then the next day, we're going to get to the passage. This is about the author. The next day. The next service, they had their music, their Latin music, and they were, they were dancing. They were singing in Spanish, but they were dancing, and I'm like, what are they singing? Jesus has come, and he has set us free. I believe, as in Mark 4, 8, or rather, that there is a dimension that we need to push into. We need to be like the author of Ephesians. We need to decide that my life is not more important than the gospel. That the cause of the kingdom is priority in my life. Serving Jesus is priority in my life. And so, let's go to the book. In the first verse, we see the first two verses that Paul introduces himself as an apostle. And we know that that term means sent one, one that is coming with the authority of the one that has sent him. And so he greets the saints at Ephesus, and he calls them faithful in Jesus, and then he, he greets them with this prayer, that grace and peace from God would come upon you. So he sends this greeting that our heavenly Father, who is the source of grace and peace. Now, that word grace, it is God's favor that comes through salvation, that is brought about by the work of the cross. And grace is also not something that we have when we make a mistake, although we're glad for grace. Can you say amen? But grace is the empowerment to live the life that God has called us to do and to be. It is grace, and then he says peace, and it, 
It carries the idea of well-being. It's, it's not just simply the absence of strife, but it refers to the wholeness and the well-being in our life in Christ. I like that this word grace, it also is akin to an Old Testament words of loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness. They are relational terms that refer to God's act of kindness and his love, loyalty towards his people. Listen. God loves us. He's faithful. The word is hesed. It means love loyalty. He is faithful when we're not faithful. He is there when we're not there. He is with us when we're in our trials. He is faithful to us. He's faithful to his commitment to us. And today, we will see that in a greater degree. So in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so Paul here, he's praising God for the wonderful blessing that comes because we as believers are in Christ. Now let me ask the question today, and if you can answer by simply raising your hand. If you're in Christ today, raise your hand. Hallelujah. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessing now. These are supernatural benefits that enable us to live out the Christian life. And he uses the word every, and that word every is significant. It means complete adequacy. No lack of everything that we need. How many are glad for that? No lack of everything that we need. Now as Paul was praying for me this morning, and as Tally was exhorting us, we want to get connected to these realities. We don't want these to be mere hollow words, but we want to be connected to them because they are game changers. Verse 3 indicates that this provision of unlimited spiritual benefits is made available through our union with Christ. In Christ, we have everything we need. Supernatural provision. In Christ... We have everything we need. Now, verses, these first three verses, Paul is describing this benefit in a very general way. But in verses 4 through 15, he's defining it with greater clarity. Now, this is what we want to see today. How much time do I have, Jordan? I'll go fast. 15 minutes. All right, got to go fast. This is what we need to see today. There is a sheer 
beauty to this. I've been studying Ephesians off and on for the last year, and I can't get past this first chapter. It is changing my life. Very quickly, there are three areas that Paul clarifies these blessings, election, redemption, and sealing. Verses four through six, he talks about God chose us. Let's say God chose us together. God chose us. Oh, that phrase carries the idea. Now listen, listen. That God, after considering all options, he chose you. Come on. After considering all options, he chose you before the world was formed. Is that mind-blowing? He chose us. He knew you and I before we were formed in our mother's womb. And one day, he sent somebody with the gospel and we responded. It was the beginning of a story that began before this world was formed. Considering all options, he chose us. He chose us to be holy, to be set apart, to reflect his character. I love this. To be blameless. That's without reproach or blame morally. And he predestined us or marked out the path for us to be adopted into his family. Think about it. The king, he chose us. He chose you. And he adopted you. And he, he has given you the full rights and benefits of the house. Listen. He says that we have been seated, seated in heavenly places with Christ. Don't miss this part. Where is Christ sitting? He's sitting on the right hand. What does the right hand symbolize? Favor. You and I who are saved today, we are seated with Christ in the position of ultimate favor. There's no place we can sit better in this earth. There's no place that we can sit better in, the, in this place. There's no place of honor other than right at God's right hand. We are the object of his favor. There was a time when we were not there, but when we got saved, he said, Jonathan, come sit with me. Come sit with me. Come on. Jordan, come sit with me. Paul, come sit with me. Do you sense God's love? Come sit with me. This place of honor, 
this place of authority. You're there now. So he chose us. He gave us. I have more to say, but I got less time. The next thing that Paul talks about, verses 7 through 12, is, is God's redemption. And he says, God in is so rich in kindness that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins and he has showered us with his kindness. That phrase, purchase our freedom, is the term redemption. And it means a payment of a ransom to secure our release. It was paid to free slaves. It carries the idea of the forgiveness of our offenses. How many are glad today that our offenses have been dealt with? Redemption. This is one of those spiritual blessings. And not only has he's purchased our freedom, but he's released us from sin and his power. We are now no longer slaves to sin. We can walk out in grace and in power. We can change. Before we were enslaved, we were driven by the flesh. But now, the power of sin has been broken. In addition to this freedom, he showers us with wisdom and understanding. He's given us the ability to live wisely and to understand God's plan for the ages. The last aspect of these spiritual blessings that we have now in Christ, verses 13 through 14, Paul talks about the good news and that God has given us his Holy Spirit who has promised long ago the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he's promised. One commentator says this about a seal. It was used in, the, in those times. It was a mark. Listen. And they would put that seal on their most prized possessions. <laughs> they would put that seal on their most prized possession. And so when you and I were born again, we received the spirits and it was a signifying, signifying that God owns us and that we're extremely valuable to him. Come on, come on, don't lose this, come on. And then Paul says that the spirit not only is a seal, but it is a guarantee. The spirit is also a deposit on the future inheritance that we have. The message that Paul is communicating here is that God, listen, so values his people so much 
that he has put down a deposit as a guarantee that he's going to complete that work in us. Come on. As we wrap this up, in verses 15 through 23, Paul, you see a shift there. It goes from a praise for what God has done to a prayer. And you can see something has happened to Paul. This truth that he has an insight in a prison with the Roman soldiers chained to him, this thing begins to shake him. And he begins to pray for the Ephesians. He prays that their eyes of their understanding would be open. That God would give them the spiritual capacity to know this. He prays this. He prays that, that they would know you intimately, Father. That their eyes of their understanding would be lightened or flooded with light. And to give them the capacity to understand and know three things. The hope for which you're called. The inheritance that has been given to us. And I love this third thing. The surpassing greatness of the power that works on our behalf. Now, what I would say today as we close that Paul needs to give us the capacity to understand this. Because when we do, there's a settling in our identity in Christ. There's an assurance that comes that God loves me. There's an understanding that my life to him has great value. And what Paul is saying in this text is that we should praise God because of this glorious spiritual blessing that he has given us. So as we close, what are the implications of what we've heard today? First of all, maybe we need to study and meditate on Mark 8 to see if I'm really fully surrendered to God. Am I still running my own life? You know, there's an age-old debate. Can you be a Christian and be a disciple? Or is a disciple another category or whatever? I, no. If we're going to follow him, we've got to make the kingdom our ultimate priority. And lastly... As we partake of these spiritual blessings, we need to live out the Christian life. Because I'm in Christ, 
God took deep personal interest in me and chose me before the world was created. God marked me out or you out beforehand that I would be adopted as one of his sons and daughters. Now I have the full privilege of the house. God was so kind to us that he sent his son to shed his blood and to ransom us and to forgive us. God has given us wisdom to live life in a skillful way. He has given us understanding to discern his plan. He has sealed us with his spirit as a sign of ownership and that he values us greatly. He has sealed us with the spirit as a down payment for the glorious things that will come. And because of this, I will praise him. Because of this, I will walk worthy of my calling. That word worthy means in equilibrium with this call. There is a quality of life that he's calling us to. He did all of this for us. Why am I going after the beggarly elements of this fallen world? He's done all of this for us. Why? Why am I settling for a brand of Christianity that is less than what the Bible calls for? As Jillian Springer said one time at at our community group when we were talking about intimacy, seeking after God, cultivating our lives, she said, Mike, I might have just settled for a lesser brand of Christianity because it's comfortable for me. The world is looking for the bride. That light on the hill, it's, it's obscured. They don't know what to believe. But Jesus is calling the church to rise and to be the bride, to abandon all other lovers, to deny ourselves, to take up the cross and follow him and to live for him. All these choices But what's more valuable than what he's done for us? Sitting at the place of ultimate favor. Father, we thank you for your word today and for the emphasis of your spirit through the different gifts that have contributed to this wonderful service today. I want to pray today as Paul did 
Because Lord, we live in this very distracted city. And Lord, we don't know the condition of our own hearts. We don't know the condition of our own hearts. And this is what you shared with us today is our identity in Christ. This is who we are. And Father, by your grace, we want to walk worthy of our calling. We want our lifestyles to be equal to that. So this we ask you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.